0: My life and my thinking. Right, hold on just one second. Do you think the things that you've been exploring in your life? I just started about recording. my
1: life, um, they apply to all the different parts. It's more about, mm, like, I keep thinking, oh, that's what Marshall McLuhan meant. The medium is the message. You know, it's more so how... I'm seeing what is happening now, what was happening at any point that's really more important than what I'm looking at. So RSD would be a really fascinating thing to explore with because I haven't really thought about it in a while, you know. Okay.
0: Excellent. Well, it's certainly one of the stories Uh, that I know about you, that as a, having spent a lot of time in healthcare and with patients that had, were diagnosed with reflex sympathetic dystrophy, which is now called chronic regional pain syndrome, CRPS, which I think, and it's pretty crappy. And I think it's kind of hilarious that it ended up with this (laughs) moniker that uh, is reminiscent of the word crap, because that's certainly, um, you know, uh, I think what it feels like to have that diagnosis. So um, so just to kind of set this up a little bit, like we're in the collective, we're really seeing, I think there's a like a leading edge there where we're seeing more purpose in our health crises, in our trauma. we're seeing them as messages versus as something random or something. Wrong. Wrong or something terrible or some kind of divine punishment. <laughs> totally. And, uh, you know, but that's not, like, I don't think that's really quite out there in the, in the collective consciousness yet as a mainstream thought. And certainly a lot of religions will have an idea that, like, this is a... That there's a purpose in it, but it's not always embodied as a, um, you know, often it's maybe seen as like a vindictive thing versus an opportunity in your, you know, or something that you, um, that you quote unquote earned because some, you didn't do something else right. Correct. Yes.
1: Absolutely. I was just listening um, to a conversation that the astrologer Caroline C- uh, Casey had with the writer Sophie Strand like over a year ago. Um, and she used this beautiful phrase for the way now I'm actually am starting to think of my whole life. But certainly my, of my RSD, she used the phrase, my dangerous, beautiful assignment.
0: Mm, that's a juicy phrase for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So set the stage a little bit about where you were in your life when that happened, when that diagnosis came up. Like, what did you think? What direction did you think you were going in? What did you think you wanted from your life? What was your mindset at the time? So
1: to set a very big stage, I think by the time I took on this special, beautiful kind of special assignment in my, the larger, dangerous, beautiful assignment of my life, I had at some point in the 90s come to accept that the life I really dreamed of wasn't going to be able to happen in this world. I was coming to terms with what we call the collective consensus trance that we call reality. So I was um and you know every life is a compromise with the understanding we have at the time and the larger understanding we're moving into. I mean, you know, that's another thing, but but I was in a world that I was growing out of. It was growing to the skin of who I had to be in that world. Um, A beautiful world full of brilliant people. Um, I had a very comfortable, as comfortable a spot as you could have in that world, you know, a really engaging career. But I knew something In me was shriveling in that world, and I didn't see any options. And so I was just keeping on going. So I was searching, and definitely I was exploring, um, you know, becoming more serious about my commitment to astrology. Traveling to sacred spots around the world, I began doing shamanic trance work. Um, you know, I mean, I was definitely questing, but I and looking. But I also was still in the too small skin. You know, I was really living the compromise. You know. And so one day near Christmas, I was rushing out of my house and I had this long cashmere scarf around my neck and I've never been one to wear high heels. But for some reason, I had been captivated by a pair of boots with what for me were very high heels and I was wearing them that day. So as I rushed out of my house, my long scarf caught, you know, in the door, it knocked me off balance. And I went tumbling down my brick front steps onto the sidewalk. And as soon as I landed, I knew that I'd broken my arm because I was um 55 years old and had broken my right arm four times since I was six. So maybe I was 56 because it was within a 50-year period. That was the fifth and last time I've broken my arm. And so went to the ER, sure enough, it was broken. And through it was my elbow, which I now have a titanium elbow, and through a long series, and so funny. I remember thinking I was working for a large private university. Um, I was um, where I had felt really embraced and, you know, had really swallowed the Kool-Aid had totally absorbed that organization's kind of story about itself. And so I remember thinking on the way to the ER and there was a large medical center that was part of the university. I'm so glad that I have somewhere I can go that I trust. So as it turned out, um, the surgery on my elbow, was supposed to happen, three days before Christmas ended up getting postponed until after new years. And then when I had the surgery, um, there were, um, it was very painful even in the post-recovery and when the bandage was, you know, the casting and bandaging was all taken off my hand, I couldn't move it was paralyzed. And Um, so, you know, I went to physical therapy, I was, you know, a whole host of things happened and eventually I could move my hand again. But when I could, I began developing this pain, a kind of pain that I've never had before. It was like a burning. It felt like my nerves were being grated and there was this raw burning sensation Um, So again, you know, many tests, many different doctors was finally diagnosed as something that was called, was kind of in a, even then, the term complex regional pain system was being used, but many was more recognized by its older term, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And it's a funny misfiring of the nervous system um, where the pain signals, you know, keep going off, but there's nothing, you know, physically, there's nothing wrong with the physical matter. I mean, it was a very, as I think most illnesses are, it was exquisitely customized to deliver a message to me about how I work. And I really believe how reality works. It's not that the physical body is nothing, but it's not what we think it is. That's what I feel now. You know, those signals, um, all the signals that run through the nervous system, they also run through the nervous system of the cosmic body that is also part of our body. We just don't recognize it. And I mean, I really have come to believe that all the rest of this body, it's its just a container for the nervous system, which is always in communication with everything. Mm-hmm. So, um Then began a very long journey of um, going to many different specialists, trying many different theories, doing a lot of my own reading while trying to be present, show up at my job, which became harder and harder to do because the RSD wasn't going away. The pain wasn't going away. And sleep became impossible. And it's really hard to function when you're not sleeping and when you're in pain. And this RSD is very mysterious because it can start in one part of the body and then spread to others. And so after, I don't know, six months maybe after I was diagnosed, the pain spread from the arm I had that had been injured to the other arm. So it was in both hands, you know, both arms. And it was becoming hard to do things like pick up a cup or turn a doorknob. Um, I drive a stick shift car and so driving became more and more problematic and it's very unpredictable. It's not constant and you never know, you know, when it's going to come and you're going to find yourself unable to open a door. And so then... In the midst of all, and every doctor that I was seeing was saying stress is the worst thing. You you can't work like this. You'll never, you know, this is exacerbating it. And so I really felt kind of trapped, you know, but what am I going to do? Um, still, however, believing somehow it would all work out. You know, Um, but the more and more doctors I went to, and then in the midst of all of this, I was fired from my job, which is something that happens very often to women in their mid fifties, highly paid women in their mid fifties. And I was shocked because the year that I got sick, I had like, you know, been the most lauded you know gotten the highest um, accolades for you know my work that of anyone in our very large department across the whole university um, and so then this quest to, um, heal my disease became even more. And by this time, it had spread to both legs. So I was walking with a cane, and sometimes I was barely walking with a cane. So I threw myself into, I've got to get well. Like it was never really in my mind that this was,
0: you know, the so
1: that way- was a fixed
0: situation, right. But- Yeah.
1: And um, I went to every major medical center in the Southeast, and it was all the same thing. (sighs) What a sad diagnosis. It's a really hard diagnosis. We're sorry. Absolutely. Yeah. And the best thing that anyone could offer me was always the same thing, which was to have this box implanted in my spine. But in my the neurologist I've been seeing here in Atlanta had recommended that and just mentioned of course you'll have to have a um evaluation for suicide suicide risk before we can do that. And instantly my body was like, No, no, you know, I'm not doing anything that's gonna where I can't have it unless if there's any, you know, I mean, it just to me was saying that's not something I want. Um, and there was with that procedure, a 50% chance that I would have up to a 50% reduction, but maybe less in the pain. And I was like, that's not going to cut it. So yeah. finally, I got on the Mayo Clinic waiting list, but for this, Issue, there was a year long waiting list, even to be able to be seen, um, because nobody really seemed to know what to do about it. So I just was like, okay, fine. If you people can't help me, I'm going to figure out something else. So I started working with an herbalist, and right away I could tell a difference. And then someone told me about somebody who did. Uh, neurofeedback. Um, and so I went to see them. Um, this guy was no longer in practice, but it was amazing. Um, he, you know, did a EEG and looked at the brain waves um, and then um, wrote a program, When I'm just watching a TV, I would watch these nature programs. And when my brain would start to make the pain waves, the picture would get small. And I couldn't have changed the brain waves, but my brain knew how to. It wanted to see the big picture. So it would, you know, start making the correct brain waves. It was amazing. And for the first Several times, I went over a period of months, um, twice a week. And for the first several times, I would leave. I remember once on the way home, I just had to stop the car and just like burst into tears, just weeping, like was fascinated, fascinating all that was getting stimulated as my brain began to rewire itself, not to make these pain waves, Um, and very quickly, I began noticing, you know, the flare-ups would be not as often, and they would be less severe, and by um, the end of the time, you know, like, it was not almost every day, but maybe once a week. And then slowly, even after I stopped um, getting the neurofeedback, having the neurofeedback sessions, and I was doing many other things, um, still taking the herbs, completely changed my diet. Um, But even after I stopped the neurofeedback sessions, it continued, the flare-ups continued to get more and more infrequent, less and less severe. They continued for several years. Like it's the last time I remember having a flare up was seven years ago now. So that was a period of about five years for complete. What is it's classified as a chronic progressive incurable disorder. So. You know, medically, I am considered someone who is in complete remission.
0: I love this so much because you, you know, in the way that you did the neurofeedback and changed your diet um, and took the herbs, that you gave your nervous system a different input and created a different output. I'm really curious, two things about this, like one, how does this, how do you, do you relate this experience to being in the window of your second Saturn return astrologically or like, where's that? I totally relate it to being in the window
1: between my Chiron return, my second Saturn return. And another return that is less well known, um, but in my experience, kind of the, the fruiting of the Chiron and the second Saturn return. And also it coincided nearly exactly with my progressed lunar return. When the progressed moon returns as it does once just every 29 years, to the natal the position Mm. so that was the so those four are are the transits beginning at 50 and ending around age 62 beginning with the chiron return ending at 62 with the um chariklo return she is a centaur planet like chiron a a a cosmic integrator so very much um concerned with the nervous system she was known in the mythology as the lady chiron and it's interesting these four transits that are our guideposts and initiators through our 50s which is the journey when we realize, I would say, the time when we realize that just as we think we're coming into the full fruition, we've finally gotten it all figured out, we're finally on our track, we be, we get these clues. We begin to get these clues. No, you've got to shed that skin because you're true, dangerous, beautiful assignment is coming out of the composting of that. And there. so there are four of them. And each, they happen in yin-yang pairs, starting with Chiron, ending 12 years later with the Lady Chiron. Chiron initiates us through our sacred wound into our sacred gift. 12 years later, Chariklo initiates us into the medicine that I would never have thought when I was 50 or 56 or even 58 was the true medicine of co-creation, which is the medicine of holding space, of knowing what kind of space to create to allow life to embody itself um, in us and as us, what do we need to do to strengthen that space? What do we need to add to that space? Um, You know, to me, that is a very magical initiation that we can't, we have to have lived through six decades
0: before we're really able to understand. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think as a woman in her early 50s, I relate to how this is unfolding in my own life as well right now. And the, you know, like we're culturally so programmed to push, to create, to work harder, and um, not as much to have the... Create the container, or to like, like, or even just to set set it up so that it can happen for us. That it's not even about the what we're doing. That it's just that there's sort of this getting yourself ready for the, like, quite literally for the alignment of the stars to show up. Right,
1: and for me, a huge piece of that has been not to put myself at the center of it but to see myself in relationship to and in service of life which goes through me but is much bigger than me it's like a connecting back in to the bigger thing that I'm part of it's almost like it's just wild i've I, I this has i i continue having this experience of when i stop thinking about myself is when things flow the best you know it's
0: that for me has been the biggest shift and it's- well, and in your, yeah, in your words, I hear so much of you describing you know that that connecting into the bigger piece that you know, almost like you're that if you were thought of yourself as a little neuron that you just got out of alignment and you just brought your neuron back into alignment with the the bigger body that we're all part of, the bigger collective, and then things start to start to work,
1: and that was uh. So I experienced that on a physical level, you know, in um, the years between 2000, it was the very end of 2008 when I had my accident. It was the very end of 2010 when I began the treatment. It was... 2016, the last time I remember having a flare up. And only in the last few years have I begun to realize, like, for a long time, even after the physical, the healing of the physical body, I was still thinking in these, in this framework of, like, I have given everything, I have lost everything to To have this healing. So I was expecting like it was going to be a trade almost. Here's what I paid. Now I will. And I see now I'm beginning to see that's the whole, that's the framework of how I see and live my life. That too had to be Smashed in some way so it could be regenerated.
0: So, what's the word that you would use in the way you see things now rather than trade? Because we use that word, you know, we think about things very much as a trade off you know, or compromise, even as you said earlier.
1: Yeah. So, so now I see it as offering without condition, maybe just offering, you mm. know. But there's not, before I would have thought that meant I'm sacrificing something. But now to me, it means I, and the truth is, I always knew this. As I think we always do, like the most devastating betrayals are the ones where we always knew we all, but we pretended we didn't know, you know, we dismissed what we knew, you know, as paranoia or, you know, whatever. So I think I, I, I realize now I always knew even when I had, everything that I could imagine, you know, I had a beautiful home, I had, you know, more than enough money, I had, I was traveling everywhere, and in my job, I had a very large expense, you know, travel fund, so I could, I mean, you know, I couldn't think of anything to have except, like, Time to be still, time to feel that when the moon is full, she's full inside of me and as me. I didn't have that, and I knew it was missing. You know, I w- I didn't. It's, it's like Eric Hoffer wrote before I was born, in a book called The True Believer, we can't get enough of what we don't really want. And all the things that we are told we should want, in my life, I had them all. And they weren't satisfying me deeply fully and completely they were numbing me they were disconnecting me and they were numbing me in a very dangerous way because it was so comfortable you know i there the edges were inside of me and so i my body chose with astonishing intelligence and cleverness and humor a way to show me you're so out of touch, you know? You've surrendered to the pain body, which is not just a personal body. I, You know, I feel like we we live inside a pain body where the payoffs are so large comfortable, generous, that we believe, well, we just have to learn to live with this pain, you know, the pain of being exhausted, the pain of always being envious of what somebody else seems to have and we don't, or the pain of shame that we're not, you know, this perfect um, heroic figure, Um, the pain of, Seeing that, you know, spring is coming earlier and earlier every year. And the storms are getting more and more destructive every year. And I think because we're part of the world, we, we feel that on, on some very deep level. And, oh, absolutely. And all yeah. we can do is really, our culture offers us ways to numb ourselves. Infinitely. I mean, there's no limit to the ways that we can. We're so
0: clever that way. We are very clever numbers for sure. Well, and to think about, you know, I think most people don't consider their success as a way of numbing. Right. Or a way of avoiding their feelings or that the do, you know, like when you're even, um, you know, for myself, I untangled over the last, 10 years or so, how cooking elaborate holiday dinners was a cope and avoid oh, great. strategy for myself. Yeah. You know, but it's something that is lauded culturally. But it was totally to avoid my feelings and my own healing process around my complicated relationship with holidays. Right. Which.
1: In the end, if you really boil it down, that's a complicated relationship. With I mean, what is the root of a holy A ho, A ho, The word holiday. It's a holy day, and so if our relationship with what we have made of holy days isn't complicated, something's. That's you know like the worst in a way you know something's really wrong if. We think it's
0: all fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, you know, it's interesting. I have not, I'm going to have to dig into that. I have not thought about it as my relationship with Holy Days before, but certainly, and like that's uh, like that's vibrating through me very strongly right now. But my relationship with, certainly with celebration and and my relationship with joy, you know, and where joy was fundamentally threatening to me. So tell me a little bit about this pattern of breaking your arm five times. Well,
1: so I've had many different thoughts about that over the years. And it's really interesting to me that every therapist, every healer, every astrologer, every medium, everybody I've talked to in a lifetime, I mean, even before it was five, I would say, you know, I've broken my right arm three times or four times or, you know, and that is the one thing, no one, no one, none of them, everybody is silent, you know. Um, And so I've, you know, but obviously it happened to me, I've thought about it a lot. Um, And I think (sighs) I mean, we all have our own dharma that is shown in our birth chart. And I, my dharma is not the dharma of the sunshine past. You know, I have almost half my planets in the house of crisis which is also the house of transformation, which also is the house of mystery and what is hidden. And so for me, joy is there, you know, in the midst of crisis. It's And the sunshine path that I was walking, you know, or trying to walk for um, over a decade was not a joyous path. It was in a con. it had its measure of contentment and certainly more plops of luxury, but it was very short on joy. So I I think part of those broken arms and it was always the right arm. And you know if you think about the right hand path and the left hand path, I think I have uh, leaned very hard into the right hand path and harmed myself in doing so because it, and even when I would, and, and as I think back, each time that I broke my arm led to kind of an opening of space for the left hand path in me. Um, the right after the first time I broke my arm, um, like my mom gave me a book of Greek myths, and as you know, mythology, and in particular, one myth that was in that book, the myth of Persephone and her journey to the underworld, that has been, I have returned to that myth over and over, I still do. And I first read it very shortly after breaking my arm the first time. And it opened up for me um, the world of imagination. That's when I began writing plays and poems and stories after that first break. Um, And after the... Well, actually, it was the imagination and realizing I could go anywhere in my imagination after the first break. The second break came very, just very soon after that. And after that, I began writing plays, poems, stories, you know, all the things. Um, And then the third break happened um, in the early 1980s, just before I discovered Tarot the runes, dream work, and astrology. And the fourth break happened um, just as I was about to meet my partner in the left-hand path. So we had a very um, left-hand... Relationship that was often challenging to me, Um, and then the last, the fifth break was the one that we've just talked about that really sprung me free from the right hand path.
0: The one of the ways that I've come to think about elbows and forearms, just like, and this is not the conventional medical astrology uh, interpretation, but in joint terms, knees and elbows are quite similar. Like they're both hinge joints and Saturn rules the knees. And, you know, in my, I see Saturn very much as my taskmaster that keeps me on my life path. And in, uh, The earth rotates one degree on the ecliptic every 72 years and our forearms relative to our upper arms are not really straight. Like we have what's called a carrying angle and the average carrying angle, like relative to 90 degrees and like it'll be framed different ways. Sometimes it's framed as 18 degrees, but the other side of that angle is 72 Degrees, and I see elbows as such. Our, you know, is like another one of our Saturnian taskmasters that, like, will like keeps us in line with that processional cycle of the earth. That you have to move, you have to keep moving forward, and that your nature, like life, is not going to let you escape your beautiful, dangerous assignment. Right, and in
1: fact. Part of the dang- beautiful, dangerous assignment is that being taken. Like if I had, say, I'd already quit my job at Emory. Say I'd already used my savings to begin, you know, my my serious work as an astrologer um I, I would then have had to have had some other you know because the experience of breaking of being broken open in some way of rupture is a necessary experience
0: yeah yeah well in the way that bones in in metaphysics, bone crystals and rocks hold our oldest memories, and certainly. And there's a whole physiology about how bones, like in particularly the hormone uh, osteocalcin, is connects to our brains physiologically and connects to our memory centers in our brains. And I know when I broke my foot about five years ago, uh, my my first thought when I fell, I was like, "Oh, I guess I haven't been still enough." <laughs> <laughs> I'd been work consciously working on stillness. and um, you know, and I think and it was a huge piece of both, I think re- helping me remember myself at a deeper level and letting go of the memories that weren't serving me, of the beliefs, you know, that I literally had to let go of, you know, that it allowed maybe memories that I had literally been tripping over to escape and free me. In that way,
1: right, and in some way that you couldn't have just like voluntarily done.
0: Oh, absolutely right. It was a it's a deep level thing, and the astrology of my foot fracture was just so hilarious. It was like, oh, of course, I broke my foot. He <laughs> looked at my chart. It was, um, and, and so I think we're all, you know, to see these things and how they happen for us and for the collective, you know versus to us. And maybe next time we'll chat a little bit about uh, finding joy in the eighth house because I have a very eighth house, a big eighth house signature too. And that darkness piece is definitely a place where I find more joy. Love and light makes me sort of want to vomit. like it do, like or I do, I can't grok at all. like it's not or I know it's not the whole picture i appreciate how sweet it is and that it. uh but yeah but it's not um yeah i think the, that that might be a great conversation for next time
1: that because yeah. i think we are starving for to embrace the darkness you know we're for an embrace a deep embrace by the darkness
0: and of the darkness Yes, well, and in the way we, I will close with in the way that we embrace paradoxes, or that embracing the paradox is part of the process, and really an incredible way to transformation and what you want, whatever that is.
1: What I would add to that is, and the the, the, the embracing the part of the paradox in which breaking, failing, falling apart are not mistakes. They're not wrong. They are, I love this phrase, the fortunate fall. You know, mm. fortunate, the, the, the auspicious break, the fortunate fall,
0: the divine collapse. Absolutely. Well, and black holes are the most luminous structures in the universe. That's right. Cosmic wombs. Yep. Well, thank you, Marsha, so much. And I look forward to our next conversation.
1: Me too.